You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Good morning. Hey, nice to see you. I'm Glenn Barnes. It is my privilege to uh, uh, be with you this morning. Uh, I uh, have been here actually at Sungrove Church before. Uh, I was here uh, several months ago and I loved it. I love what God is doing among you. I love to see the things that are happening um, here in this church and uh, meet some people and see them again. And so it's been really great. Uh, the last time I was here, it was the men's retreat. And so it's nice to be invited back and it's nice to see that there are actually men at the church because that week there were, you know, a lot of, a lot of people were gone. But anyways, uh, glad that you are here. I have known uh, Dave uh, Flegg, your pastor, for a number of years. We actually went to seminary together about 25 years ago. We were kind of the young California kids that went out to Colorado. And way back then, I knew that Dave was going to just be an outstanding uh, pastor. I could even tell that. Everybody knew that way back then. Uh, but I will tell you this, and you probably know it already. He definitely liked to play volleyball more than he liked to study. And so um, that's just a little uh, something about him. So I have been a pastor at First Baptist Church of Lodi uh, for the last 20 plus years. It's so cool to be a part of the same uh, body of Christ and, and, and my church right at the same time is meeting, uh, worshiping the same God, uh, focused on the, the same grace and love of Jesus Christ. And so it's cool to be a part of a big church family. So I have been at the church, as I said, for over 20 years. I came as a youth pastor, have changed jobs, changed positions in the church quite a bit through the years. Uh, our church has actually moved locations in the time that I have been there. But my wife, Jannie, and I and our three kids, the 23 years that we have lived in Lodi, we have never moved. We have been in the same house the whole time. We have a lot of friends, neighbors, all kinds of people uh, that move. It's very common, of course. We have never moved. Same house the whole time. Part of the reason is I hate moving. I mean, seriously, right? It's just overwhelming to put all this stuff together. Um, we've never moved, but I have helped a lot of people move through the years. In the times that I've helped people move, I've developed kind of some strong convictions about moving boxes. So I don't know if you guys have any opinions about moving boxes. I do. They come in different shapes and sizes. There's the small moving box that's kind of, you know, small. You can only put a little bit of stuff in it. And you got to stack a bunch of them on top of each other. And they're never quite all the same size. I am not a fan of the small moving box, right? That's just not working. Uh, a lot of people love the, the mega grande size, super large moving box. It's great because you can put a bunch of stuff in it, but the problem is it's like it's so big, you can't get your arms around it, and you know, you're carrying it up the stairs, and it's so heavy, and then the bottom falls out and stuff like that. And so I have grown to have a strong love for what I would call the medium-sized moving box. This might be a little small, but it's what I had. And um, what I like about the medium-sized moving box is you can get a bunch of stuff in it, right? You can still get things in there, but I, you can get your arms around it, right? You can hold it. It's not going to be too heavy. You can kind of manipulate it around. You can move it, get it where you want it um, to go. And so that is why I am a big fan of the medium-sized moving box. You may say, why in the world am I talking about those things like moving boxes? Because I wanted you to think this morning a little bit about boxes. Because this morning's message is called, Get Your God Out of a Box. Because I don't know if you have noticed this or not, but like a lot of things, people like to keep God in a box. 
right? We like to be able to, to define God's role in our life and say, you can come this far, but no farther. And I, I know how to, to get my arms around you, and I know how to pick you up and move you around and, and manipulate you around. And, and you may say, I have a really big box for God because he's a great God. And so I can put a lot of stuff in it. But I, you know, or you may say, I just have kind of a small box. I don't, I don't you know, know that much about God. I don't know where your God box came from. Maybe it was something that was given to you from the family that you were raised in. Maybe the size of your God box was given to you by uh, maybe your early experience with Christianity. Maybe by the church you grew up in. Maybe by a denomination. I don't know where your box came from. But friends, if I am here to tell you anything today, it is this. Is that our God doesn't do boxes. In fact, my encouragement for you today, and I've heard speakers do this, say, you know what, well, if, you know, if your God's in a, a small box, you just need to get a bigger one, get a medium-sized box. If your God's in a medium-sized box, just move up to the grande, the bigger-sized box. I'm here to tell you this morning, don't move up to a bigger-sized box. I'm here to tell you to get rid of the boxes altogether. Because God, the creator of the universe, the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ, the one who left us his Holy Spirit to indwell our lives, is not the kind of being that you can put inside of a box. He is too big. He is too great. He is too beyond us. He is immeasurable. What I'm trying to tell you this morning is that God is unboxable. Not really sure that that's a word, but you need to know that God is unboxable. So as I said, the, the message this morning is called Get Your God Out of a Box. An alternative title, you may want to write this down, is Indiana Jones, A Fat Priest, and How to Know the Presence of God. So get your God out of a box or Indiana Jones, a fat priest, and how to know the presence of God. So there's one kind of main story that I want to get us to in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you would grab those, open them up, take out your message notes um, that you got. I know some of you love, like the, you're the blank filler inner people. Today is your lucky day. Look at all those blanks. I mean, there are just tons of them. So I uh, encourage you to grab this out, follow along. Um, this is a little ploy I have to keep you awake and engaged. But we're going to work, work through uh, this stuff. Um, as I said, to get to kind of this main story eventually in 1 Samuel chapter 4. But before we get there, we need to know some background. Because when we jump into 1 Samuel chapter 4, there's going to be some people, some things that we read about. And we just need to know about them before we get started. And so we, uh, I need to tell you, first of all, about some of the people that are going to be in the story. The first one is a guy by the name of Eli. Eli is the high priest of Israel at this time. So this was before there was a king. First Samuel is the book where Israel gets David to be the king uh, and Saul the first king, but this is before that time. And so the ruler of Israel was still the high priest Eli. So he was the political leader, the religious leader. He was a priest, the guy who represented God, Eli. There were some good things about uh, Eli, but as you, uh, you're going to see here in a little bit, uh, most of his reign was a pretty tragic, or at least the, a big part of it was a very tragic thing. Eli has two sons that you need to know. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas are also priests. Although it's going to seem weird to you when I start to describe Hophni and Phinehas to you that these ones are the priests because they're supposed to be the ones that represent God to the people. And yet this is what we read as we start to fill in this background about Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 12 begins like this. Eli's sons were scoundrels. 
I love that. They were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. So just stop right there. Right away you get this picture of who Hophni and Phinehas were. The Bible doesn't call many people scoundrels, right? It's not really a a Bible word, but it's a really descriptive word. Other places it says that they were wicked, that they were unrighteous. Other places it says not only that they didn't um, uh, have a regard for the Lord, but they had no respect for God. They didn't know God. And so right away you read that these are the ones who are supposed to be the leaders of God's people, and yet they're scoundrels, and they don't even really know or respect or honor God. That's what I'm trying to tell you because that background's important. Verse 13, why were they such scoundrels? scoundrels? Let's see what it says. It says it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and while the meat was being boiled of the sacrifice, while the meat was being boiled, the priest would plunge the fork into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot, and whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites when they came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest, Hophni and Phinehas' servant, would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, hey, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. And the sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight because they were, uh, they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So what it says there is they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. And did you get the picture there? The people would bring their offering. And God from the beginning always said that the priest could take some of the offering, right? That was their, their support. So there was, they were allowed to take some of it. But what they were doing is they were taking it. And while the offering was being made, whether it was being boiled, they would plunge their fork in. And whatever they got out, that's what they took. They wouldn't even wait till it was boiled. They were taking the best parts. And if the people said, no, 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 that's not how you're supposed to give the offering, it says we're going to take it by force. So basically, they were showing contempt for the Lord's offering. Another way of saying that, as you see on the screen, is that they stole from the Lord's offering. And I don't know about you, but, you know, sins are all, you know, the same in God's eyes, and yet there's kind of a, a, a hierarchy in my mind. Stealing from the Lord's offering is at the top of the list of scoundrels for me. I mean, it would be like this. It would be like, you know, the offering is collected here and all the money goes and the pastors go in and they just say, I'm going to take this much for myself. And they steal it. I mean, that, that's, that's horrible to even think about. Churches, of course, need to be very careful about financial accountability um, because people do steal from churches and you have to be very cautious about that. But whenever you hear one of those heinous stories of someone who ripped off some poor church, man, it just gets my blood boiling, right? It'd be like stealing the cookie money from the Girl Scouts. It's just, it's, it's wrong. They stole from the Lord's offering. And yet, do you know, that's not the only place that the Bible actually talks about stealing from the Lord's offering. There's another place in the book of Malachi, several hundred years later, when God is speaking to all of Israel, not necessarily to the priests, but to all of the people, kind of like he speaks to us today. And God says to the people, he says, you're robbing me. You are stealing from me. And the people are like, come on, God, how could we steal from you, right? 
You own everything. How could we steal from you? And God's answer to them through the prophet Malachi is this. You rob me by not bringing your full tithes and offerings to the storehouse. God looked and he saw that they were keeping some back. They weren't giving what God had asked them to give. Now the reality is, is that God owns everything. I don't know what you own in your life. I don't know how hard you worked for it, but I know this, even though you may have worked very hard for it, God owns it all. God allows us to steward some of his stuff because he is gracious and because he is loving. But when we hold that back from him and we say, this part's mine, 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 God says it's as if you're stealing from me. But with Hophni and Phinehas, they were actually stealing from the offering. Can you imagine those scoundrels? But that's not the only thing that they did. Let's keep going on with the story. Verse uh, 22 says this. It says, now Eli, remember the dad, he was very old. And when he heard about everything that his sons were doing and all that stuff to all of Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So Eli, who was the high priest, went to them and said, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people around, uh, all these people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And so not only do we see that Eli, Hophni, or Hophni and Phinehas were stealing from the offering, but we also see that there was this sexual immorality that was going on at the temple. It says that the people would come to, to Shiloh, which was the place that they would come to give their offerings and their place that they would come to worship. And it says, Hophni and Phinehas, you're sleeping with the girls when they come to worship. What's going on with that? Well, that whole idea of sexual immorality tied up with, with worship is, for, at least for me, a very foreign thing. That just, I, I've always had a hard time kind of putting that together. You see it throughout the Old, the Old Testament that there was temple prostitutes and sexual immorality that went with the worship of the idols. And God very clearly tells his people, like he tells us today, that you're different you're my people. You're God's children, right? And, and so not only do you have the rights of being my children, but it means that you live differently than the world around you, right? We, we, we live just with a different set of values than the world around us. So the sexual immorality, God says, not only is that wrong when you come to worship, but the practice was borrowed from the Canaanite religions around them. So in other words, Hophni and Phinehas probably didn't think up that idea by themselves. They got it by looking at all the way the other people around them, they worshiped their idols. And they saw, well, hey, that's the sexual ethic of the people that I live with, so I'm going to adopt that and make it my own. Right? So not only were they committing the sin of, of the actual act, but they were becoming like the nations around them, which God very clearly told them not to do. And I share all that with you. Because as I said, as God's children, we're called to stand out as different in this world. And the world is looking. The world is looking for grace. The world is looking for truth. The world is looking for light. I have the strongest convictions that the church in America and the church around the world, one of the ways that we are going to have to stand out as completely different from the world around us is by our sexual ethic, right? 
Because sexuality is always, it's obviously back to these times, and then in the New Testament times it was crazy. But it seems like more and more, you know, there's kind of this anything goes when it comes to, to sexuality, right? And, and so, so we say, well, God tells us to do it a, a different way. God says that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And what, what God joins together, nobody should separate. And some people would look at that and say, whoa, that is very old-fashioned. That is very strange. I don't think that's for me. But here's the deal. In their heart and in our hearts, we were all created by the same God with the same pattern. And so while people may say that seems really weird, that seems really different, inwardly people are longing for something that's different. And the church of Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, has got to stand out as different, especially for the way that we view and the way that we practice our sexuality. It's huge. And the world is watching. And if I could just say, this is probably not true about Sungrove Church, because you guys are awesome, but the church has not looked different enough from the world as it should. A lot of times it looks pretty much the same. And so Hophni and Phineas, they're like, man, they just are, you know, they're stealing from the offering. There's a sexual immorality because they were drawing their sexual practices from the culture around them. Not only that, they didn't listen to their father's correction. So their dad, Eli, comes to him and he's like, hey, kids, why are you doing this? You know, you go, you, people are starting to talk. And it says that they actually ignored their father's correction. So on the same list as stealing from the offering and sexual immorality is actually not listening to your father. Uh, this was a verse I had my kids when they were very young start to learn and memorize. And I wrote it on their walls. And No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. But you see what they were up to. And they were scoundrels is what it says. Next person we need to know about is Eli. So as I said, Eli is good in many ways um, as the leader of, of Israel, but he is also corrupt in many ways. One of the reasons we read is because of what we read in 1 Samuel uh, 2 verse 29 that says this, God is speaking to Eli and he says, why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? And then this is what God says to Eli, why do you honor your sons more than me? by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people. So what God says is, Eli, hold, I hold this against you. You know the right way to do things, and yet you're honoring your kids more than you're honoring God. Has anyone ever known someone that honors their kids more than they honor God? I'm a parent. I have three kids. I know how difficult this is because parents, you love your kids, right? You want your kids to be successful. You want your kids to be the best in sports. You want your kids to get the best grades. You want your kids to be the most popular. You want your kids to be the most happy. And so a lot of times, parents, we run around and we think we got to do all these things so that our kids can be happy and that our kids can have this and that. And in the meantime, what we've ended up doing is we've honored our kids more than we've honored God. And I'm not saying you don't want your kids to be happy, but what I'm saying is more important than their happiness is their holiness, right? That they would be right with God. And so there's so much pressure in this. Like I said, I've got two in college, one in high school. I have felt firsthand the, the struggle of this. I was never under the impression that my kids were part of the 99.9% .9 that were probably never going to get a, a college scholarship in any sort of athletics, but they played sports and they weren't terrible at them. And so every once in a while they'd get invited to come on to like a traveling team, right? And, and so you'd meet with the coach and the coach would say, well, this is the schedule. You know, we, we practice or we, we play games on Sunday morning and we would say, oh, oh you know, Sunday morning is the, the time that, you know, we set aside for, for church. 
And a lot of people think you can't even say that to a coach. You can say that to a coach. You can say that to a coach. Sometimes we had coaches say, ah, you know, it's probably not the team for you then because we require that. But you know what? Sometimes we had coaches say, you know what? That is awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us, and, and we're going to make a way for it. And here's the deal. It wasn't so much about that our kids had to be in church on Sunday morning. That was part of it, but it wasn't just the legalistic part of it. It's that we were wanting to teach our kids that we honor your relationship with God more than anything else. They would have loved to have played on the, the sports that would have conflicted with their, their, their involvement in church or whatever it was, but we weren't teaching them to honor that. We were teaching them to honor God, and it's not easy but I tell you, it has a lasting impact. My wife, when my, our kids were little, uh, especially when they would go off to school, my wife used to say the strangest thing to them. And she would say this. She'd say as they were leaving out the door, she would say, uh, I love you. That's not too strange. And then she'd say, I love, she said, tell them, love God and love people. That's kind of the instructions for the day. As you go to school, love God, love people, and shoot for C's. I'm like, honey, they could do better. I mean, let's, you know, shoot for the higher thing. And fortunately, my kids never necessarily, you know, tried to always take the easy way out. But what my wife was trying to communicate to my kids was this. When you go off to school today, here's our family's priorities. We want you to love God. And we want you to look for opportunities to love people. And we want you to do well in school. But you know what? It's not as important as it is to honor God and to love God and to love people. And so go ahead and shoot for C's if that's what it takes for you to love and honor God. Because again, we wanted our kids to get good grades. We didn't want that. But what we wanted them to know is that it's more important their relationship with God than anything else. And parents, our kids are watching and our kids are learning, and our kids are longing for something that is full of depth. And Eli's like, he, he, not only does he, he tells the kids, they disobey him. What he should have done is put his foot down and said, no, we're not going to steal the Lord's offering. We're not going to sleep with the girls when they come to the temple. We're going to do it a different way. But Eli honors his kids more than he honors God. All right, so that's Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. We're getting our blanks filled in. The next person we need to know before we get to the real story is about a guy by the name of Samuel. Samuel, obviously, is who the book is named after. What you mostly need to know about Samuel is that he stands in contrast to, to Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. So you've got two family lines that are running parallel, and they stand in contrast. Samuel was actually dedicated to God. So Samuel's mother, Hannah, couldn't have a child for a while, couldn't have a child for a while, so she prayed and she prayed. God finally gave her a child, and you'd think that she would want to hold on to that child more than anything, but Hannah, what she does in 1 Samuel chapter 1 is she takes her son Samuel and dedicates him to the Lord and actually gives him to be raised by the priests so that he can grow up to serve, be dedicated, and to honor God first. And so that's what you need to know about Samuel. He was dedicated to the Lord last piece of information you need before we get to the, the important stuff is about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, here's a picture of what that might have looked like. The Ark of the Covenant is this very important part of the Old Testament, a part of Bible history, and it goes like this. God instructed the Israelites on Mount Sinai how to, to put this together and what to do with it. And so it's made out of a very special kind of wood, this acacia wood, and then it's covered with gold, and there's the representative of the angels with their wings covering over it on the top, and you had to put it on poles, these long 
poles because when the priests carried it, it was so holy that they couldn't touch the ark. You see, because the ark represented the power and the presence of God. That's what this ark was all about. Because inside the ark where were the Ten Commandments and there were reminders of how God had blessed the people even when they wandered in the wilderness because it was supposed to remind the people that God was, was with them. And so wherever they went, they carried this ark because it represented the power and the presence of God. And the belief was this. The belief was is if you had this God box, if you had this ark, you couldn't be defeated because you had God on your side. Do you know how I know that? Because I watched the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now I realize that this movie is getting pretty old, so anybody under 40, you may not know this, but the plot of Indiana Jones before it was a ride at Disneyland is the story of the Raiders of the Lost Ark and the plot. You guys remember the plot of this? Indiana Jones is trying to get to the Ark before the bad guys get to it. Who are the bad guys? They're the Nazis, right? And they think this. They think if they can find the lost Ark of the Covenant, then they're going to have God on their side, right? And they can go and they can take over the whole world because they will have the power and the presence of God. And if they've got their God box, then they will be undefeatable, right? There's nothing that they can do because they will have their God in a box. As strange as it would seem to us that the Nazis would be side by side with God, and yet that's what we read. So here's my question to you. Is that a biblical approach to the Ark of the Covenant? Knowing what you might know about the Old Testament, is that, is that what the Bible actually says about the Ark of the Covenant? It's kind of a trick question. My, my, uh, our church recently has, has gone, done a study in the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, you see how important the Ark of the Covenant is and where it goes. God's power is there, right? So when he's going to lead them at last into the promised land after wandering in the wilderness, he says to the priest, you take the Ark of the Covenant and when you step into the river, when you step into the Jordan River, then I'll part the waters. And they have to have the faith to take that first step in, but they're carrying God's Ark. And then they get into the promised land and they've got to go and they've got to fight the people. And one of the places they have to go is to Jericho with these huge walled cities. And so God says, well, here's the crazy thing. I've got a battle plan for you. What I want you to do is march around the city seven days, blow the trumpets, and then the walls will fall down. And you're like, what kind of military strategy is this? Not only are we going to get killed, we're going to look stupid doing it. But God says, no, carry the Ark of the Covenant with you. And that'll represent that my power and my presence are with you. And so it is true that the Ark of the Covenant represented God's uh, power and his presence with the people. All right, so that is what we need to know. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, bad guys. Samuel, dedicated to the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence. Now let's get at last to the real story, which is in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And it goes like this. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. A little more background. I know you know this to be true, but the Israelites are the good guys. The Philistines are then the bad guys, right? So whenever the good guys and the bad guys fight, you would expect that the good guys would win. In fact, in the Bible, when the good guys don't win, it should make you scratch your head and say, hmm, what's going on there? right? It would kind of be like, almost like the, the Cleveland Cavaliers beating the Golden State Warriors, the bad guys beating the good guys. You would say, God, what is wrong with the world that this kind of thing would happen? But it says, now the Israelites went out to fight the good guys against the bad guys, the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines, the bad guys, deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, 
Israel was defeated by the Philistines, huh? who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. And so the first thing you need to know is in that first battle, Israel is actually defeated by the Philistines. And you should say something's not right there. What's going on? But they are defeated and 4,000 of them are killed on that day. And so they say, what, what are we going to do about this? Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. Continuing on in the story, verse 4, it says this. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. And you need to ask yourself at that time, what's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with that picture? Because if the Ark of the Covenant represents God's holiness, God's power, and these guys have been living as scoundrels, saying that they're God's people, but really not living it in any way, and now you've got them side by side, every bell in your Bible brain should be going off that something isn't right with that picture, right? God does not align himself with people that play the game and say, I, I don't even know God, but I'm going to act like I serve him, and I'm going to get his box, and I'm going to take it off the shelf when I need him. God is not like that. God does not want to be treated in that way. God is holy. God is perfect. God is righteous. And so that is a weird picture. But Israel's plan is, hey, let's go get the ark. Uh, we, we, we've seen the movie. We know if you've got the ark, it's a good thing. So verse 5, when the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all the shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed, right? Because the Philistines had heard the rumors about the God of Israel. They'd heard all the things that they had done. In fact, the, the Philistines are afraid and they say, who's going to deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. So be strong, Philistines. Be men or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so they're afraid, but they say, all we can do is go fight. Verse uh, uh, 10 there says, so the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So the first time they go into battle, they're defeated and 4,000 are killed. They decide, let's go get God's presence and, and get God on our side. And if we have God on our side, then we're going to be undefeatable. And then they go into battle, and how many are killed that time? 30,000. It's a slaughter. It's a slaughter. What happens there? Why didn't the formula work? Because here's the way that God is. We think if God is on our side, we can be undefeated. But here's the deal. God is not looking for sides to join. The real question is not, is God on my side? The real question is, my life on God's side? 
right? God's not looking for a team to join. He's inviting people to join his team. God will not be manipulated. God will not say, you, people can live however they want. They don't even need to know me. But you know what? When they pull me off with their religious rituals or their good luck charms or their, their ideas, no. He says, I'm not going to be manipulated in that way. And so it says that the Ark of the Covenant is captured and Hophni and Phinehas are, are dead. But that's not all. You keep reading verse 12 of chapter 4. It says, That same day a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and, his dust, on, and dust on his head. When he arrived there was Eli sitting on the chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the Ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town set up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and he asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man, turned over to e the man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes, were, uh, eyes had failed so that he could not see. And he told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines. And the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of the Covenant, Eli, who was supposed to be the high priest, fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. For he was an old man and he was heavy. For he had led Israel 40 years. So it just keeps getting worse and worse. Not only do Hophni and Phinehas, but Eli die. He actually falls out of his chair and he breaks his neck. And the Bible goes out of the way of saying not only was he old, but he was also what? He was heavy. He was this fat priest. Why is that relevant? Why would the Bible include that detail? Why was Eli heavy? He was stealing the Lord's offering along with his kids. He was supposed to be leading the people towards God. But he was showing a disregard for him that you could live your life however you wanted and still come and, and expect that you can just pull God off the shelf whenever you need him. And he is going to be there for you. Israel's sin ultimately is that they're trying to manipulate God. That's not the end of the story. Let me just wrap that chapter up by telling you how it all ends up. It says, also his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant. And near the time of delivery, when she heard the news that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured and her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth. But she was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair. You have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the capture of the Ark of God and the death of her father-in-law. She said, The glory has departed from Israel for the Ark has been captured. So not only do the priests die, the priest's sons die, but some poor kid gets named Ichabod. And the name means the glory of the Lord has departed because that is what had happened. You see, their sin was that they were trying to manipulate God. They were saying we could live however we want. We could be the same as the Canaanites. We could do whatever we want. And yet God owes us something. We'll just pull God and his box off the shelf and I'm here to tell you today, God doesn't do boxes, right? God's not asking you to get a bigger box. God is telling you, I can't be contained in a box. 
And if you look at God and you think there's certain rituals I do, and if I do this and I give that and I go to this, then God is going to have to be on my side. That's not the way it works. God wants you to give this and go to that and do those things so that you can know him better. But his goal is not just so that you can be happy and have all these little things that you want. His goal is so that you can know him. And from the very beginning, we see Hophni and Phinehas, it all breaks down because they don't even know him. And what God wanted was not this religious ritual even then. He wanted a relationship with his people and he wants a relationship with you today. Not one that you have him in a little box, but one where you know the God of the universe. As I was thinking a, a little bit about this, I, I talked about God in a box with, with my church not too long ago. And at that time, I, I wrote something down, um, really for, for our church, but I, I'd, I'd love to share it with you as well. Um, about having God in a box. And this is what it says. It says, if your God's job description reads, make my life more comfortable. If your, job's God, if your God's job description reads, make my life more comfortable, happy, and convenient, then your God might be in a box. If your God says things like, don't take a risk, just play it safe, then your God is in a box. If your God's job is to obey you and do what you want when you want, kind of like a genie, then your God is definitely in a box. If your God is a white guy with a closet full of suits and your God loves Americans more than he does Iranians or Syrians, then your God is in a box. If your God is always saying come and never saying go, you might have a God who's in a box. If your God never wrecks your schedule or messes up your plans, if your God never asks you to do something that isn't in the budget or downright scary or terrifying, then your God might be in a box. If your God needs a certain president in office to work in a nation, then your God is in a box. If your God has never filled your eyes with tears and the thought of his grace or taken your breath away because of his power, then your God is too small and you're trying to make him fit in a box. If your God's dream is for you to retire and just spend a, a couple decades taking it easy, then your God is in a box. If your God always agrees with what you like and, and always agrees with you and always likes what you like, if your God is Baptist or Methodist or Lutheran, or if your God is just fine with you only spending an hour a week with him, then your God is in a box. If your God says you have worked hard enough on your marriage, now it's time for you to just take it easy and just be happy. If your God looks at your sin of greed or lust or gossip and he says, hey, it's no big deal, at least you're better than most of the other people around, then you've got your God in a box. If your God says your life is too messed up or, or your family is too broken for me to use or you're too old or you're too young or you're too poor, you're too guilty, you're too late, then your God is in a box and I'm here to tell you today that God doesn't do boxes. Yeah. God's calling you out. God's calling you out to something great. I believe that, Sun Grove Church. I believe that God not only has something great for this church, I'm, I'm sitting down in Lodi just watching the things that God is doing here. But not only does God want to do things in this church, but God wants to do something in your life. God wants to do something in your family. And you need to have a real understanding and a real relationship with God for that to happen. Let me just wrap the story up like this before we get to communion. So that's not entirely the end of the story because remember you have the parallel between Samuel and Hophni and Phinehas. So the ark gets captured by the Philistines. They take it. They put it in their Philistine temple. 
right? And, and it's a hilarious story. You got to read this. All of the, the Philistine idols start to fall down because they, they put the ark in, in their, their temple. And then the people get sick and there's these plagues. And so finally the Philistine people are like, uh, we don't want the God box anymore. We would like to get rid of this thing. It's killing all our idols. It's making our people sick. So they actually give the, 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 the ark back to the Israelites. And yet they still are fighting. The Philistines, the good guys and the bad guys are still fighting. The Philistines and the Israelites. But now Samuel, who is dedicated to the Lord, is the leader. Let me just wrap this thing up by reading to you 1 Samuel chapter 7 beginning in verse 2. With Samuel as the leader, it says, then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. Man, what a beautiful statement is. They turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then get rid of the foreign gods and the Asherahs and commit yourselves to the Lord and to serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their Asherahs and they served the Lord only. Remember all that stuff about being just like the Canaanites? They were not only practicing the sexual practices, but they were worshiping the same kind of gods. And, and Samuel says, I invite you to come back to the Lord. And if you do, get rid of those idols. Start to do it differently. Look differently. Get rid of those. Verse 5, it says, Then Samuel said, Assemble all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and they poured it out before the Lord. And on that day, they fasted. And there they confessed. Again, do you see the contrast? Hophni and Phinehas, they were just grubbing. They were eating everything they could. And, and these people are different. They're like, no, no, we're going to put food away. We're going to fast because our dependence is on God. They say, we have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as the leader of Israel at Mizpah. You see, they, they depended on the Lord. And when the Philistines heard that Israelites had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. Remember how different it is? First time it was the Philistines that were afraid. Now in humility, the Israelites are afraid. And not that God wants us to be afraid of our enemies, but he wants us to recognize that when we face battles, our strength does not lie on our own. So the people said this, they said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. And then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a burnt offering to the Lord. And he cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered them. They got rid of their idols. They confessed their sins. They depended upon God alone. Last verses, verse 10 says this, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines, the bad guys, drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. And the men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and they pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them all along the way to the point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shin and he then named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord, the Lord has helped us. And so the Philistines were uh, subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory throughout Samuel's lifetime. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The result of that kind of dependence, that kind of humble confession and dependence upon God is victory and peace for the people of Israel. And that kind of dependence upon God and that kind of real relationship with him is victory and peace in our lifetime as well. Not that there won't be challenge, not that there won't be struggle, but each and every one of us goes to face battles 
The question is, are we going to do it carrying God in some little box and thinking it's all up to us and whatever good luck we can get from God? Or are we going to say, God, I lay my life before you. I know the love you have for me because you sent your son, Jesus Christ, and you filled my life with your Holy Spirit. So God, I depend on you. God, thank you that you do not do boxes and I get rid of them. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for ancient truths and stories that are weird in their cultures in some sort of ways, and yet, God, could it ring any more true to our culture still today? And so I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, that you have called us to set aside the idols that we place our hope in, that we are called to set aside a, a life that ignores you, but maybe believes you're just there on a shelf that we can pull you off when we need you. And God, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters that we would pursue a real relationship with you. And I just imagine that there are some here today who need to really begin that relationship. There's some who maybe have, their life has been a, a life of religious and ritual and it's more like you're a God that fits in a box and you're talking about something so much more. You're talking about a relationship with the God of the universe that can come through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And I believe that there are some here today who maybe need to begin that relationship. And if God is tugging at your heart, I encourage you right where you are to say yes to him. In just a moment, you're going to take communion, and communion is for the believers in Jesus Christ. And I say that not to exclude anyone to, from communion, but rather to invite you, because maybe today is the day that you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're ready to begin that relationship, if you would just slip your hand up, I'd love to pray with you and just agree with you. So you just slip your hand up. I wouldn't want anyone to miss that opportunity to have that real life-giving relationship with the true God. And God, I thank you for Sun Grove Church. I thank you for the work that you are doing. I thank you for the great things you still want to do. Bless them, Lord, beyond that they can even think or imagine because they serve a God who cannot be contained, a God who is unboxable. And we pray this in the strong name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sungrove Podcast. For information on Sungrove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.